Feel free to have a seat if you can find one. <clears throat> you know, it's uh, my honor to be here this morning. My name is Steve, if I have not met you. And uh, welcome to uh, H2O. I wanted to give you a very heartfelt and special one-on-one -on -one welcome. And um, this morning as I'm talking through some of these things, I, I, there's a part of me that says, like this first story, <clears throat> this, is, this is not a story I've told anyone. Um, and uh, I would kind of like to not tell you. Um, but things happen, and um, it's important to <clears throat> be real. So, so maybe we could pretend for a second that you know, we're sitting down over uh, coffee someplace, and it's just you and me, and, and we've had a conversation about life and real things, and we're talking about what uh, some of the more sensitive places in our stories have been, and I, I tell you, um, <clears throat> yeah, in second grade, um, I used to come home from school and look for my brother and beat him up, and um, apparently this happened over and over. And <clears throat> that's confusing to me because I don't remember it, but I've heard the story in my family told enough times that I believe that it happened. And I've heard it from my parents, and I've heard it from my brother, and I've heard it, but I don't remember, and I don't like that me. Uh, I, I sound mean. I, I sound like a bully. I sound like somebody that I wouldn't like being around and yet apparently that was me. So, you know, as my parent, um, what would you do, right? Uh, you'd give me consequences. That's what you do when you got a kid who's beating up their brother. <clears throat> you'd talk to me about how being kind is really important. And you'd make me apologize to my brother. And you'd figure out ways for me to make it up to him and maybe I'd lose my TV time and he'd get it or things like that, right? You do the things that you can to try to make it right and give enough consequences that it would change behavior. Maybe you'd use some other kinds of discipline. And yet apparently it kept happening. And uh, apparently I lost all my TV and all kinds of privileges that you could have as a kid for quite some time and it still kept happening. So then the question is there why, right? Was it because I had poor character? Was it because I was just a mean kid? Was it because I had anger issues? Could be because of any of those things, right? But the root comes uh, more from the reality that hurt people hurt people. And there was this guy, Danny, Greece, I'm going to call him, that's not his name, but uh, that's how it echoes in my brain. Uh, Danny was big, and Danny bullied everyone. And Lee was also in my class, and Lee was small. He was the smallest of small. Um, he was the smallest kid in our class. He was also fast. I loved being on soccer teams with Lee because if he and I were on the same team, we'd win. And uh, that was great. But somehow or other, that must have threatened Danny. And Danny sp specifically chose 
Lee to pick on. And he picked on his size, and he called him names, and he shoved past him in ways that would push Lee down, and I got mad. And I stood up to him. I saw him moving towards Lee, and I stuck myself in between them, and the worst thing in the world happened. Danny noticed me. And the rest of the year, he took his bullying out on me. He used to bully everybody. Now I was his target, and I was his special target. And he called me names. One time he saw me wiping my face and my nose after playing basketball or something, and he called me Booger Eater. And that name stuck. And, and, I, and, and that sucked. Because who wants to go around being called Booger Eater? And he would push me, and he would call names, and he would think of creative ways of putting me down every day. It was humiliating, even though many of those things were not true. And this was a different era, right? You know, these days, there's someone you can go to. There's somebody designated, hey, if there's a problem, if there's a bully, you go talk to this person, and we'll get it sorted out. And somehow or other, that wasn't true in that day and age. Um, you just suffered. And, and so I did. I suffered. And then I came home, and I looked for my brother. Because hurt people hurt people. I mean, in truth, I was a good-hearted kid. I, I wanted to be kind to people. I was a principled kid. I saw bullying, and I thought, that's wrong. I recognized it. I was a courageous kid. I stood up for somebody that I cared about, and I stuck myself in between when no one else did. And I was also clueless. I had no idea how to navigate all the stuff that was trapped inside of me. I had no idea. We're going to look at a video together. This is used overseas in training uh, for uh, police and investigators. Um, and so let's watch this for a second. It talks a, a little bit about uh, trauma and what goes on inside our brain in moments of trauma. Today's session is about trauma. The latest in brain science will help you in your work. I'll start with a tour of the parts of the human brain. The reptilian brain maintains basic bodily functions. The limbic system is also instinctive. It deals with fear and pleasure. For example, you pat a dog, it senses pleasure, and without thinking, wags its tail. The neocortex is the site of logic, imagination, planning and control. It's more sophisticated, but because it's conscious, it's slower than the older parts of the brain. The amygdala is a key part of the limbic system. It has one job, to sense danger and set off the alarm. When it's a matter of survival, the primitive parts of the brain override the conscious part. There are three possible survival responses. Fight, flight, or the one that people don't think of, freeze. When the alarm goes off, blood and oxygen are diverted to muscles, adrenaline floods the body, and all systems that are not crucial to survival are switched off. 
Normally, the job of the hippocampus is to file memories so you can retrieve them later, but in times of danger, it stops filing memories, which makes it harder to gather evidence later on. Instead, the hippocampus switches to pumping cortisol. What's useful about cortisol is it stops us feeling pain so we can focus on survival. Can anyone give me an example? A farming accident where a man carried his own arm for a mile without feeling any pain? Yes, excellent example. It is an evolutionary safety mechanism which is fast and instinctive. In essence, it's our body's very clever way of protecting us. To recap, an example of the three parts of the brain working together. You're standing at a bar. Your reptilian brain is keeping your heart beating. You're enjoying the pleasure of a nice pint with your limbic system. You're using your neocortex to work out if there's time for another before the last train. What could happen to make the amygdala kick in? What if this happened? The way you'd respond would depend not on your logical brain, but on your instinctive brain. Being glassed in a bar would be a traumatic experience. Who can give me another example of an event that can cause trauma? War? Rape? A car crash? Good, yes. Trauma occurs when a person is overwhelmed by something beyond their control. The survival brain takes over the rational brain. It can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, with symptoms that last at least a month. Okay, so um, there's a reptilian brain, there's a limbic system, there's a neocortex. Um, and all of these different pieces, there's the amygdala, which has that one job, sending off the alarm and sends us into either fight or flight or freeze. <clears throat> there's the hippocampus, which is supposed to be filing memory, but then shifts over into cortisol production, which shuts down uh, our pain receptors, but it also stops us from remembering. So interesting that I don't remember much of beating up my brother. And so there's things that... Um, if we understand what's going on on a physiological brain chemistry and function level, it changes some of the way that we look at what's going on behaviorally at times. I'm not saying it wasn't wrong for me to go beat up my brother. I'm not saying that wasn't sin. That was sin. I should never have done it. Uh, it was really harmful for him. But... Um, this awareness also gives us an invitation. It's an invitation to be curious, to kind of, especially if it likes ongoing, you do all the things that parents should do or that friends should do when we come alongside somebody who is wrestling and having these um, actions that don't seem like they're in step with what would be uh, normal actions, can we call it? And so what I want to do is I want to be curious. You know, maybe instead of Steve is just being mean, I want to move into that and kind of go, oh, if I'm curious about things, I'm able to move into his world and find out what's motivating his behavior or his reaction. If I'm a parent, I might curiously move into my child's reality, trying to help them have words to describe what was going on. Now, at six, and in my family, there was no way I would have been able to put two and two together and say, well, Danny's bullying me every day at school, and so I gotta take that out somehow. And my brother, you know, he's the only one around that I can take it out on because I can't take it out on, you know, mom and dad or my older sister. So there it is. I wouldn't have been able to say that. 
But I might have been able to say, yeah, school's not going well. I hate school. I don't want to go to school. I don't like going to school. Every time I go to school, I think about what's going to happen today. And, you know, it's okay as a parent to set boundaries. You know, it's not okay to blank. Blanking is not okay, and this is going to result if, you, if that happens. It doesn't, so being curious doesn't mean I can't set healthy boundaries. And the same thing is true if I'm uh, a relative uh, or a friend and I'm coming alongside somebody who's even a young adult or an adult that is having behavioral uh, examples of things that are saying something's distressed inside of me. I want to, in much the same way, curiously move into my family member's world or my friend's world as much as I can uh, without it being unsafe. If, if uh, moving into that without some, some boundaries is not safe for me or for them, then I want to set boundaries there. Uh, but it's the same thing. You know, blank is okay. It's fine to talk about the distress that's going on inside, but you can't beat me up while you're doing that. That's not okay. So let's figure out a different way to do that. And so you're allowed to set boundaries as you're moving curiously in. It's not okay to beat up your brother. If you decide to do that, you're going to lose TV for a week and your brother gets yours or, or whatever, right? Now, we've set some boundaries. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what you're feeling when you're about to beat up your brother. And, um, you know, maybe I wouldn't have been able to say some of these things. Looking back, you can imagine some of those things that I would have been feeling, right? I was feeling powerless to stop the bullying towards me. I felt wronged that I had stepped up to protect Lee, and I was the one who kept on getting hurt. <clears throat> I've got some notes in here that don't belong, so I'm just going to... Oh, wow. Okay. So I felt... Powerless. I felt um, alone. I felt wronged. I felt angry because this just wasn't right. And this brings us to what goes on inside of us on an emotional level that we don't think about sometime. And I call that emotional stacking. Okay, if I'm feeling alone, hurt, powerless, and angry, which one is the one that I'm most likely to express towards the world? Anger. Okay. Anger is powerful, not powerless. It's strong when I'm weak. It's maybe able to right a wrong because it's got this energy to it that doesn't happen with the hurt and the aloneness and the powerlessness. If I'm feeling all of the above without my neocortex being involved, without me thinking it through, anger is most likely going to come out of me. But it's not just that simple because that anger, let's say on a scale of 0 to 10, I'm feeling angry at a 4. And a four, you would hear me say something like, that is so frustrating that Danny keeps on beating me up every day. Okay, that would be not fun, but you'd hear me and you'd be able to dial into what's going on. But that four is stacked on top of however much alone I'm feeling, however much worthless I'm feeling, however much weak I'm feeling and powerless, however much, and so you end up getting a nine or 10 of anger out of me. And a nine or 10 of anger looks like me beating up my brother without even understanding exactly what's going on. So, who deals with trauma? You know, real people deal with trauma. Maybe you're connected with um, that wife who was victimized at four years old by neighborhood boys and wants to be close to her husband, but cringes anytime touch becomes more than a hug. Maybe you're aware of the husband who kicks into super defense mode 
and criticism whenever his wife asks him to do something a little different. Could you do the dishes this way? Because correction always came with shame attached to it when he was growing up. Or maybe the daughter who doesn't have a voice in her relationships with boys because she was shut down when she tried to have a voice growing up. It was always what mom and dad said. There's a lot of different ways that um, we can move into trauma responses that are not the same as uh, either being raped, like the example uh, in, this, in the video, or a car crash or war. Many of those things will, of course, put us into survival mode, but many other things do too. The son who's retreated into addictions because it's the only way he can deal with shame and pain of feeling ostracized by kids at school. Okay, so these are, these are real people. These are, many of them, good people, people of character, but people who hurt others and themselves because they're hurt. You know, what about the wife who wants to respond really, really well to her husband? She knows that he loves her, but when he doesn't return a text from her sometime later that day, she feels ignored, worthless, and alone. She feels less than because she's been physically and emotionally abused earlier in her life. And so she lashes out with anger. He comes back home thinking, I'm finally going to get a chance after work is all done to connect with my wife, and he's met with fierceness. And so she lashes out with anger, and her survival brain is kicked in, and she's not able to do what she wants to do. It's like that passage in Romans 7 where Paul is saying, for what I'm doing, I don't understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. And, and is it possible to get there? Yeah, for you and me, it's more possible to get there than we would imagine because it's connected to survival brain. Paul calls it the spirit versus the flesh. He explores this a little bit more a couple of verses later. In verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. Now, we're not saying that every sinful impulse that we have in life comes from trauma, okay? Sometimes it's just selfishness or lust or uh, swirling around myself, um, and, and, and that's how it is too, because we're dealing with pride and all of those things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But some of it can be kicked in because of wounding and trauma. Paul invites us into something that feels counter to what we think. In this passage, you know, when, when you think about it, you say, you know, what should someone do when they sin? Well, they should own it. They should apologize. They should try to make it right, right? Okay, that makes sense. That's what I would want my kids to do. That's what I would want to do. Figure out how to own it, how to apologize, how to make it right. But Paul does just the opposite. He says he invites us to separate out the sin from us, from our identity. He doesn't say, I own it. He says, it's not me. Okay, in verse 21, he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. 
for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And this principle that Paul is inviting us to understand and apply is freeing. It's not that I can't work on it. It's not that I want to pretend I'm doing everything right and everything's fine, everything's well, everything's loving. It's not that, but it's that I don't have to take my identity from what I've done, from my actions, especially if it's counter from what my heart really intends to do, what I want to do. And he says, so I understand this thing is in me, Sin dwells in me, the one who wants to do good. And so suddenly the, the battle is not against me being bad. The battle is not against me being evil. The battle is against sin towards me. And it changes, I'm bad, I'm a horrible husband, I'm a sinner. It becomes, I'm renewed because of Christ, but I have sinned. I'm loved because of Christ, but I've hurt someone I care about. I'm a new creature because of Christ, but I want to pursue healing in my own heart and in those relationships. So we're going to look at three ways I can support my friend or family member if I sense they're dealing with a trauma trigger. But just before we do that, um, I want to take a look at another quick video. This one is actually a video that is used to invite teachers into understanding trauma and how it relates to their students in the classroom a learning brain versus a brain in survival mode. So we'll just call it learning brain versus survival brain. And this is the difference. So learning brain is this brain that's open to learning new information and it's completely okay with ambiguity and grays and vagueness. And it sees the big picture. It like pulls back and is on the balcony, can look over the forest and figure out what's going on. On an emotional level, people in learning brain feel calm, peaceful, maybe a little excited about what they're about to learn, maybe a little playful and having fun too, and definitely curious. And they're not afraid of making mistakes because it's just part of the learning process. And so they're not really thinking about themselves. And they actually feel a little bit of confidence that if they just apply themselves, they might pick up what they're trying to learn. Now survival brain, on the other hand, is completely different. It's hyper-focused on threat, it doesn't like ambiguity. It wants clear, hard facts. It thinks in black and white terms. It doesn't want anything to be gray at all. And then emotionally, you can imagine that survival brain makes people feel panicky, feel like a little obsessive and afraid of getting things wrong. And they don't feel calm and open to learning new things. They just want to get things over with. And people in survival brain also really don't like making mistakes. And they are afraid of looking stupid too. So students in survival brain don't want to be picked on. They don't want to raise their hand and ask questions and look stupid. And so these people are also filled with doubt about their own ability to learn stuff. And they're afraid that other people can see how stupid they really are. Now, it's really important to understand a learning longer, it's so, harder to get out of. So, yeah, we can keep on going just for a little bit. And the way I think about it is kind of like the myth of Sisyphus. You know, that guy who has to push a rock up a hill oh, wait. and then so, every day. It falls back down. Sorry, that last section, all it said was that survival brain trumps learning brain. And so recognize that in this is a educational video for teachers in the classroom that is not talking specifically about a trauma 
moment that a child went through, it's just recognizing that sometimes being in class can kick in survival brain. And that survival brain is like, oh no, don't call on me. Uh, what if I blow it? And, and that criticism or missing something kicks us into survival brain and says that it, uh, it trumps survival brain. One of the things that uh, this video goes on to say is that pictures the student as a baby elephant, you know, dancing around and having fun and being relaxed and, and uh, invites teachers to recognize that the reason that little uh, baby elephant can be carefree is because there's all these big elephants around that are protecting it. And so the invitation is to recognize we can make a difference in how safe somebody feels. And if I'm not feeling safe, I move more into survival brain. If I'm feeling safer, I move into, what well, in this example, learning brain. Okay, open to new things, not feeling like it's bad to, to be wrong. Uh, I might even be wrong, but that's part of the learning process. That's okay. That's way different than survival brain, which says if I'm wrong, uh, I, something bad is going to happen. Okay, so over here, defensiveness when I find out that I'm wrong or I'm criticized. Over here, <clears throat> oh, okay, that's part of learning and, and growing, and thanks for letting me know that I could do that differently. So um, it's interesting because, okay, so three ways we can help somebody who finds themselves in survival brain. Uh, the first one is recognize that if they normally have good character uh, and I got hurt, they likely didn't mean to hurt me. There's something else going on, even if they did hurt me. Number two is uh, be aware that my actions and my words might either help them or force them more into survival brain. And then number three is begin to seek to validate anything that I can. I can really see how that would be scary for you or how that would hurt you is way, way different than, you know, you're just overreacting. And, and overreact, you're just overreacting is going to invite somebody more into survival brain. I can really see how that would be scary for you or challenging for you moves towards uh, learning brain. Does that make sense? Let me give you a little bonus. Fourth one, uh, to the extent that it's safe, one of the most significant things we can do when we see somebody overreacting is to let them know in whatever way we can, hey, you're not alone, I'm with you. Because that's one of the things that is true about survival brain is we feel alone and it's all about us and no one's going to be there for us. And so that might happen by offering to pray with them or pray for them. It might uh, happen by saying, hey, you know, stuff is stirred up right now. Could we, could we go for a walk together just for a little bit and maybe not even talk, just kind of walk together? Because I want to be with you as you're doing this, you know, or... or depending on what your relationships with that person is like, and if they're open to it and you think it would be appropriate, maybe you say, you know what, how about if we just take a few moments and do some deep breathing? Because that kind of calms our whole system down. I really want to understand what's going on here, but it seems like there's a lot to get through, and, and um, maybe we wouldn't be able to do that where we are right now. And so, and if it just seems like this same thing keeps on coming up and coming up and coming up, it's an invitation to look deeper. Maybe there is some trauma stuff, some bullying that happened, and that's why you're beating up your brother all the time, or whatever else is going on. And so maybe considering some uh, counseling or trauma therapy, um, it's just that there are things that we're trying to sort out that we, it might not be the same uh, as what it looks like on the surface. So we're going to turn and look at five key truths about trauma and suffering from Scripture. Um, you know, the first one is God is present. when I feel alone, but God is present with me in my suffering. The challenge is I don't always feel that way, right? Lots of times when I'm suffering, it, I'm feeling alone, and I don't feel like God's there at all. 
we feel the farthest from him. We feel like, has he forgotten me? How could he let this happen? But we're not alone when we feel these things. David in Psalm 13 says, you know, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? And it's this upwelling of pain and aloneness, and I'm in pain, and you're not doing anything about it. And Jeremiah in Lamentations saying, you know, even when I call out or cry for help, it feels like he shuts out my prayer. Job uh, is saying, even if I summoned him and he responded, I don't believe that he'd give me a hearing. There's those places that we find ourselves. Maybe you found yourself in some of those places when you're in pain or somebody that you care about is in pain. Jesus there on the cross, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from the Old Testament. This place. So what did, what, did God blink? Uh, was he not able to stop things? Was he not able to change things? Or isn't he really a loving God? Okay, there's a whole Sunday we could spend on that. But, you know, Job came around to understanding this a little bit more deeply. His wife says, look at all the devastation that's happened. Uh, you've lost everything. And are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die, she says. And he says in, in chapter 2, you know, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God? and not trouble, and he's got this awareness that we're gonna get both in life, and shouldn't we figure out how to try to accept both? God didn't blink. He's in control, and he's loving us through a reality he did not design us to have to face. And that makes it challenging. So number two is God is good and does care for us. The creator of the world made a way for disobedient, powerless creatures to come into an eternal relationship with him. He's gracious and patient. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then he sacrificed himself in 1 John 3.16. This is how we ought to know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. In John 15, he even kind of dials in more on that. And he says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. Self-sacrifice is the ultimate act of love. And God is good, and he's done all that for us. He longs to be in an ever-deepening relationship with us. So just because I don't feel his presence, I can't conclude he's not there. I just need to conclude, I don't feel like he's there. And I'm even allowed to tell him that. God, I don't feel your presence. And he can handle that. The third one is something that we don't like to think about. Trials can actually bring us closer to God. If I'm going through something hard, and I feel beyond myself... I'm in a totally different place than that place where we can get to in life when it's like, everything's fine, I'm good. As a matter of fact, I'm really good. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I got this covered. And somehow my need for God fades in my understanding and awareness. And there is something in uh, that self-reliance that grows at times when we're not dealing with challenges that we're facing in life. It's when our faith is tested that we recognize our need for complete dependency on God. 
James tells us that persevering through the difficult times develops a mature and complete faith. He says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may mature, be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the fourth thing we want to take a look at is that Jesus understands what it is to suffer. Okay, and as we go to that slide, there's a million verses on this, right? Because um, we, don't dis we don't worship a distant, unapproachable God who has no idea, you know, he's God, he he's never felt anything horrible. We worship a God who knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to suffer. Um, you know, think about his life. He, he didn't experience just one traumatic event, did he? There was this whole series of traumatic events. Uh, Isaiah told about his suffering hundreds of years before he ever lived on earth. He was born in Luke. He was born into unimaginable poverty in a country occupied by a, a cruel army. Um, in uh, Matthew, he narrowly escaped that mass slaughtering of children that was ordered because he was born. In Matthew uh, 4, he was physically assaulted by Satan. In Luke 4, he was persecuted because of his teaching. In Mark 3, uh, he was thought insane by his family. They came and said, hey, send our brother out. He's kind of crazy. And uh, in Mark 14, he was betrayed by his own disciple and then uh, deserted by his friends in, in Mark 14 and also falsely arrested and publicly humiliated. And he was beaten to the point of death in Matthew. And then he was slowly and painfully publicly executed by crucifixion as a common criminal in Matthew 27. And this long, it's almost like, wow, did he go through anything that was peaceful. There were moments of peace, but there was also a lot of tragedy, a lot of trauma. And we can take comfort in the fact that God can relate to us on our level when we're going through some kind of a challenge. He understands what it is to suffer. And the last thing we want to take a look at is my identity is not formed in the traumas I've faced. In Ephesians, this whole uh, passage invites us into a reality that says, I'm, I'm grounded in Christ. My identity is grounded in Christ. God does not see me as a victim, even if I've been victimized by trauma or wounding. He sees me as his child, his kid. Scriptures tell us that as children of God, we were chosen before the creation of the world, and we were chosen to be holy, blameless, adopted sons and daughters, lavished with grace, redeemed, forgiven, even from beating up a brother, given spiritual wisdom, understanding, and marked with the Holy Spirit. That's a whole different life. That's a whole different identity than I'm the kid who grew up beating up his brother. I'm the wife who uh, screams at her kids. I'm the, those things are real at, in our life at times. And we want to be able to allow Paul's wisdom to recognize, wait, that's, that's not me. That's sin. I find the, the truth that sin is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And that that's where my identity is in Christ. That one who wants to do good is there because of God pursuing me my whole life. We are in Christ. We sit at the right hand of the Father. We have his righteousness. 
We can't allow tragedy or circumstances to define who we are or how we live. And we need each other to be able to have the strength and the wisdom to see when that's happening and to be able to navigate out of these survival places we find ourselves. We have his very life within him, within us, and we must choose to live out of that. So let's pray. Lord, allow us to see our actions, our own actions and the actions of others through, through your eyes. You know our motivations at a deep, deep heart level. You are the one who knows our sufferings. It's not foreign to you. It's not strange to you. It's not weird to you that we have gone through sufferings. You know what it's like. Thank you for your kindness toward us in our sufferings. Thank you for your grace toward us. We end up with unmerited favor. We feel like we don't deserve it, and somehow in your economy, you offer it. Thank you for your forgiveness. The opportunity to become more and more like you as we live in this world that brings so much suffering. Lord, help us bring love. Help us bring grace. Help us bring kindness. Let us be more like you. Amen.